0: That is putting our love to the test. Seasons like this test our knowledge of what demands uh, of what love demands. Seasons like this test our wisdom in applying that knowledge to uncharted territory, and they really test our willingness to both to apply both to our lives. We're in a season that is unique. We're being, we're being faced with questions that. We never thought we'd have to answer whether to gather or not, whether to social distance or not, whether to wear a mask or not. And the operative question that is laid at our feet is what does love demand? What does love require of us? What does love call for? How is love to function and to carry out in this season that we currently live in? And for some, the answer is quite easy. Love demands things like masks and social distancing. That love requires that we take every necessary measure to protect others from the virus. Because doing so, in the case of some, is deemed to be one of, if not the highest expression of love that we could render to someone. For others, the answer is more nuanced and typically takes, more into consideration, like whether certain measures are legitimately efficacious, or whether the severity of the virus warrants such measures. And as I'm sure you know, you can have strong opinions on either side. Opinions so strong, they have the potential to divide a church. In fact, I've heard of some who have even left their church over the issues that are currently facing us in this day. But in my estimation, this season for the body of Christ is a glorious opportunity to glorify Christ. I mean, what better opportunity for the body of Christ to come together in love and navigate this season in a way that glorifies God? And not necessarily in uniformity, where we all see the world the same way, but instead, in that we can dwell harmoniously together in spite of our differences. You see, it's, it's out in the world that we expect to see arguments and division and irreconcilable differences, but in the body of Christ, we expect to see unity and harmony and love. We expect to see the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so as we find ourselves in this awkward season where determining what love demands is challenging and stretching us, I want to aim today to equip us for it. That we would glorify God together by remaining lovingly committed to each other in spite of any differences we may have. And so I've titled this, What's Love Got to Do With It? Subtitled, Social Distancing Masks and Goggles. Although I'm not going to touch on goggles, I just that in there. And I need to apologize because my my voice is not what it would normally be and it's to my shame and embarrassment as I make this public confession that I was just a little bit excited on Friday night and may have um, strained my vocal cords a little bit. So please forgive me for that. It is embarrassing and uh, it's second time, actually, this has happened, and and, uh, I should have seen it coming. Please forgive me. Now, to set the expectation, I think you'll find what follows both biblical and well-balanced. In fact, I think you'll find it so balanced that virtually every one of us will feel uncomfortable At one time or another. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, just imagine how I'm feeling. Because I'm having to address this matter that can be so polarizing for the body of Christ. But we need to embrace this discomfort. We need to to bring our hearts under the radiance of God's word so that we can test and evaluate whether or not we are walking in love. And I want to just make a comment for those of you who are tuned in online. Again, I, I need to reiterate our support for your decision to not be here. And at times you may feel that I'm trying to persuade you to be here, and that isn't my aim, but it's almost unavoidable that you will not feel that way at some point. My aim here is simply to equip the entire body, and there's no way to do that without addressing issues that come to bear upon the gathering. So again, we want to answer the question, what's love got to do with it? We want to unmask the truth about love. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first, loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor. We're going to address love for the brethren separately. So for now, I want you to simply think about love for those outside the church, love for those who do not yet love Christ. And for this, I want you to turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, the Pharisees approach Jesus to test him about his knowledge concerning the law, which is, from our vantage point, futile. I mean, they're testing the eternal word and his knowledge of the written word. When the written word proceeds from him, want to use this portion verses 34 to 40 to sort of set the table for a discussion about loving your neighbors look at verse 34 it says there but when the pharisees heard that jesus had silenced the sadducees they gathered themselves together one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him teacher which is the great commandment in the law and he referring to jesus said to him you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and foremost commandment the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets and so there you have it you have the the summation of the law's demands, the whole law can be summarized in these two commandments. First, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And second, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Two commandments which, in effect, summarize the Ten Commandments. The command to love God corresponds with the first four of the Ten Commandments, and the command to love our neighbor corresponds with the next six, the six that remain. And so... In the first place, we're called to love our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And this means that we aren't to worship any other God. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We're to worship God and God alone. It means we aren't to cast a graven image. Verse 4 of chapter 20 in Exodus, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. We are not to make an image of anything and worship it. It means that we aren't to claim we belong to God and then live in a manner inconsistent with that. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And, under the old covenant, it meant ceasing from work on the Sabbath, Saturday. Which, the new covenant either abrogates or redefines, depending on your reading of scripture. And when you sum that up, we're to love God with every aspect of our being. The whole person, with our affections and our thoughts in our actions, every aspect of our life is to be an expression of our love for God. In the second place, we're called to love our neighbor. And this means honoring our father and mother. Exodus 20 verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So we have to honor our parents. It means not taking the life of another. Verse 13, You shall not murder. It means honoring the covenant of marriage. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It means honoring other people's property. Verse 15, you shall not steal. It means honoring the truth. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And it means being content with what you have. The 10th commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And really, that that love is the principle that is being affirmed here as far as loving the the your neighbor, and therefore. Not doing these things or doing them in the positive, Paul makes this very connection in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, where he says, Listen, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, We're called to love God and love neighbor. And really, it's important to note that loving God and loving neighbor are never in conflict with each other. There should never be a time where you have to choose between whether to love God or love neighbor. Loving God with all your mind, soul, and strength will necessarily result in loving your neighbor as yourself. These two expressions of love are in total unity and harmony with each other. Now you say, why is that? Because the nature of true love is defined by God. God determines the nature of of true love. It's bound up in the very essence of who he is. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And so God is the one that defines love, not our neighbor, not the government, not even the Christian. God is the one who defines and sets the parameters around what love is. Now, as long as matters are black and white, amen and amen, right? I mean, as long as it's clear You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Very simple, very straightforward. But what do we do in a season like the one we're in, where things aren't as clear-cut? Well, I want you to notice something. And you probably didn't. But as I've referenced love for neighbor, there's a little ingredient, apart from when I quoted scripture that I left out. See, oftentimes... When we hear love for neighbor, there's a little itty-bitty two words that that are right there in that commandment that get overlooked. And so when you leave those out, how your neighbor wants to be loved ends up being the determining factor in how you love. But that's not the command. Look back at verse 39, Matthew 22. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself, and so we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. How we love ourselves is to shape and inform how we love our neighbor, and this is supported by what is often called the golden rule. Matthew 7, turn there for a minute. I want you to see this and notice the language Jesus uses. When he makes this statement, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 12. It says this, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And notice, for this is the law and the prophets. So, Jesus has affirmed that to love your neighbor as yourself is a fulfillment of, of the law, and he's also said that treating others the way that you want to be treated fulfills the same reality. And so these two realities are totally consistent with one another. How you want to be treated needs to shape and inform the way you treat others. And so again, what that means is How you love others isn't necessarily going to be dictated by how they want to be loved. Especially as a people who are alive spiritually, who understand life and death and the reality of God, who who understand the true nature of righteousness and and holiness and obedience, you're going to have insight about how to love someone that someone who doesn't have Christ isn't going to have. And that's going to shape the way you love them you're going to have to love them in accord with their best interests even when they don't necessarily see that love as being in their best interests because you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so on matters that are clear-cut, loving your neighbor as yourself is straightforward. You don't want to be murdered? Don't murder anyone. You don't want someone violating your marriage? Don't commit adultery. You don't want your stuff stolen? Don't steal the property of others. You don't want to be lied to? Don't lie to others. And when things aren't as clear, you need to treat others the way you want them to treat you. How you love yourself remains the rubric for how to love others. Now that should be helpful. really should be helpful but even then there are different ways to go on this and i'm going to try and illustrate this by just some of the relevant situations that we find ourselves currently in for example take this gathering the world says that gathering during the pandemic is unloving now i realize that we could respond by saying you take the same position when you see riots and protestings take place, but just put that all aside. Forget about that for a moment. The world says that gathering during the pandemic is unloving, and the argument goes that we, by gathering, are putting the greater public at risk. By virtue of coming to the gathering, and in reality, transmission of the virus can take place, we are putting the general public at risk. By gathering to worship Christ. And many churches have embraced this line of reasoning. They believe meeting will compromise their testimony. And so they've closed their doors out of love for neighbor. But the question can be legitimately asked, is that the best way to love our neighbor? That's a fair question to ask. And we need to consider, are there any unintended consequences to not meeting? You say, like what? Like maybe perpetuating an unnecessary and unhealthy fear. Many people are afraid in this season. Many people are scared. And there's so much, including the media, nurturing this fear. The news continually reiterating messaging about the coronavirus and the number of cases that have taken place and all the rest of it it instills fear in people and so by not meeting we could be inadvertently perpetuating unnecessary fear or by implicitly affirming that we're afraid of death too they're afraid of death if we opt to gather in this season, we might inadvertently convey the idea that we're afraid of death. That Jesus hasn't taken this thing out of death. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ conquering the grave, has no real significance in the context of a pandemic. And so, by not meeting together, it's possible conceivable that we could inadvertently convey the idea that we're afraid of death. And really, if we have opportunities where there's some questioning or some pushback on gathering, and I'm thinking now on a one-to-one level, an individual relationship level, that's a great opportunity to testify to the excellencies of Christ. What an opportunity to emphasize the the glory of the resurrection, to emphasize that that we gather recognizing that God is sovereign and that he is good and he's in control and worthy of all glory and worthy of all honor and Jesus has conquered the grave there are many things that may befall us in this life there are many ways we could die but we know Christ has conquered the grave and so it can be an opportunity to share the gospel or we potentially convey and this is important to consider that the gathering isn't essential. That meeting together on the first day of the week as the body of Christ to worship God is non-essential. That worshiping together, being together in a gathering like this where we're in each other's presence is of no real significance. I mean, we could just go to live stream for good, just cancel the gathering altogether, all go into our own homes and worship the Lord in our own homes through live stream without ever having any contact with each other. Which would signal to the the watching world, I would think, that the gathering is non-essential. And they already think that. They already believe the gathering is not essential. They don't believe that what's happening right now is essential. They don't believe preaching is essential. They don't believe the word of God is essential. And so we potentially end up perpetuating the misnomer that the gathering isn't essential. And maybe worst of all, we may be at risk of downplaying God's infinite worth to a watching world. Where we fail to prove that Christ is the pearl of great price. You see, by not gathering together, we potentially convey to the watching world that God isn't worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. That he's not worthy to be praised as we have this morning. And so really all of these things need to be considered as we think about what we what love requires in the context of loving our neighbor, especially when loving our neighbor isn't as clear-cut as the, the Ten Commandments would outline for us. change gears just for a moment and let's touch on masks for a second the hot button topic of the week and we're just considering the public sphere at this point we're not thinking of in the body at this point in time we're just thinking about being out in the public being out in the public sphere now i could be wrong and we'd have to do a survey to determine this but i could be wrong but i think most people in the public wear a mask to protect themselves i think most people and i could be wrong and things are changing right now so i understand that but i think most people wear a mask to protect themselves we were in a restaurant for example and this is just one case so i'm not putting a lot of stock in this but i asked our server just very graciously and just with curiosity why do you wear a mask are you wearing a mask to protect me Or are you wearing a mask to protect you? And as that conversation unfolded, it seemed pretty clear that primarily the mask was being worn to protect her. And if she feels safer in a mask, then I want her to wear that mask. She can do whatever she wants. I want her to feel safe. And so in cases like that, when the person is wearing the mask to protect themselves, I feel quite content not to wear one. But even if I'm right in my assumption, recognizing that As time goes on, more and more people are going to wear one because they think they're protecting me, regardless of whether masks are effective or not. And so as time goes on, the general public is going to see my not wearing a mask as me not protecting them. And so what do I do? at the outset let me just say that i respect every person's choice in the matter i'm not here to dictate to you how you should handle this situation i recognize there's complexity and there's nuance and so i'm not here to to do that but i do want to challenge you just a little bit you see if the general public believes that by you not wearing a mask you're unwilling to protect them from the virus then you're in a difficult spot You say, but James, I don't want to perpetuate what I believe is a lie about masks, to which I would say that's fair, but are you prepared to explain to each person that takes exception why you don't believe faith faith cloths are effective? Are you willing to engage in that conversation and give a thoughtful explanation to each person who raises the, the concern? Are you not concerned about me in this moment? Are you not concerned about protecting me from the virus? I mean, that could be rather time-consuming to have to give an exposition on the efficacy of face cloths in the context of the virus. I mean, every aisle you go down, a new conversation. will actually, if I could just explain to you for a moment, and then you're left, you got to create tracks. So now you're going to have face cloth tracks where you're going to write a defense for why you don't believe in the, the face cloth. And so you're handing out tracks. And of course, you would hopefully insert a gospel tract in there too, just to make sure you gave them the real good news. But you can see the challenge. I mean, you don't have the opportunity in these one-on-one interactions with people to convey everything you need to convey so that they understand that you actually do care for their well-being. But just don't believe the mask is efficacious. You see, when the issue is about protecting you, no harm, no foul. I mean, I prefer my oxygen unfiltered too. But when it's about protecting others, things get tricky. We shop at the Costco in Nisku. And when you go into the Costco at Nisku, they offer you a mask. And I've just said, no thanks. You know, I'm I'm good. I, I imagine most people are wearing the mask to protect themselves. And I don't feel like I need to take that measure. And so I'm quite happy to to not wear a mask. Well, now I almost have to ask, are you asking me for protection of me? Or are you asking for the protection of others? And if she goes, the protection of others, then I'm in kind of a difficult spot because if I say, no, I'm good, then I'm saying, no, I don't care about protecting others. Now, I could pull the car over and have a conversation with her about that and give her my 10-point list on why I disagree with the, the imposition or mandate of masks, but that's going to be rather awkward. I'm going to be having that conversation as people go by you can just picture that and so i need to understand what the offer entails and if the offer is being made to me for the benefit of others then i might need to think really hard about putting on the mask because of the impression that it would give to others by not doing so and recognizing that I'm not prepared to have a conversation with every single person who has an issue with me not wearing one. Now I realize someone could say at this point in time, but James, isn't that inconsistent? Couldn't you use the same logic to support not gathering? Couldn't you use the same logic you just used with the mask to support not gathering? And the difference is what? Scripture commands the gathering. Scripture does not forbid the mask, and that's a significant ingredient in separating the two issues. Now, again, I'm allowing for differences of opinion on this. I'm not claiming that my approach is the only approach. You may have a very different approach, but here's the thing. Whatever you do, it has to be rooted and grounded In a humble, honest effort to love your neighbor as yourself, recognizing all of the complexities of the situation. So that's loving your neighbor. But what about loving the brethren? And why the distinction? Why make a distinction between loving your neighbor and loving your brethren? Well, first of all, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is rooted in what? An Old Testament context where the covenant community was made up of both believer and unbeliever. And so there wasn't a a new covenant principle where the covenant people of God were were all born from above. And so it was necessary to be more general in in that command, which obviously includes even your enemies. But in the new covenant, those who are born from above make up the covenant community, And therefore, you must be one who has passed from death to life. You must be one who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God to even be able to love the brethren. And that's why love for the brethren is evidence of saving faith. The unbeliever is incapable of love for the brethren. And so, though love for the brethren certainly encompasses the second commandment, there's a sense in which love for the brethren transcends the second commandment. And to see this, I want you to turn to John 13. John 13. If you're taking notes, jot down second, loving the brethren. And we're going to be focused on John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. And in verse 34, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And there are three features that, identify this commandment as distinct from the command to love your neighbor as yourself. The first is fairly obvious. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. So our Lord identifies this as a new commandment, and it's really difficult to get around that. So this is a new commandment, and the second feature pertains to the object of this love. A new commandment I give to you, here it is, that you love one another. So this isn't calling for universal love of all people, believer and unbeliever. Instead, this is calling for a unique and particular love for the body of Christ. And that's obvious from verse 35, which says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so our love for one another ends up being critical for our testimony to a watching world. And the third feature that identifies this commandment as distinct is the standard by which it's measured. Look again at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, here it is, even as I have loved you. There's a distinction there. In the command to love your neighbor, the, the rubric, the, the measure is to love your neighbor as yourself. Here, it's not to love your neighbor as yourself, but to love your brother or sister in Christ as Jesus has loved you. That is now the standard that ought to shape our love for each other. And really, we need to just simmer on this for a moment. I mean, just stop for a second. We're called to love one another the same way that Jesus, has loved us. So not only is our love for each other critical to our testimony and witness to a watching world, but our Lord's love actually sets the standard. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, 1 John three sixteen. Jesus laid down his life for us, did so for our sins on the cross, and we are to lay down our lives for each other. And so let me just say, we have a phenomenal opportunity before us in this season to love one another. This is a perfect season for the love of the brethren to manifest itself. What better time? And the love that the Spirit has generated in our hearts to manifest itself and to express itself. I mean, just consider the monumental occasions that are going to come to you at a moment's notice in this season. There's so much to disagree about. Opinions being so freely expressed. Massive issues to think through as a church Great unrest in the world, and there's no doubt a sense in which the unrest in the world is impacting every single one of us. Life is not the same right now. You have disagreements between churches. If there was ever a time when believers needed to love and needed to show tolerance for one another in love, Ephesians 4:2. This is it. If you just think about it, the love that's required of us in this season infinitely pales in comparison to the love of Christ. What we need to do in this season to love one another doesn't even come close to what Jesus did for us on the cross. And since the Spirit is working in us, enabling us to love this way, we have everything that we need to fulfill this. And even grace and mercy when we come up short. And so just for a moment, right where you are, consider. You may feel you've been wrong. You may feel you've been misunderstood. You may disagree with the stances that people are taking. You may disagree with the leadership. All of these are perfect opportunities to practice love right now in your heart before god you can release a person of any offense that they've committed against you you can release them of any issue that is on your mind right now before god and have it be a matter that's never rehearsed again never shared with someone else never thought about again totally taken away, just as God has taken away our sins as far as the east is from the west, right now you have the ability, by God's grace to release your brethren of anything they have done against you or that you perceive they have done against you or if it's a matter that needs to be addressed where in your heart of hearts you believe you you need to go to this person, either to relieve yourself of the burden or, or for their good then you can purpose right now in your heart to do that and to lovingly and graciously go to them and and resolve that issue and put the glory of Christ on display, the gospel, forgiveness. But really, to do anything less than that is to miss out on a glorious opportunity to glorify Christ and our love for one another. as Christ has loved each one of us. You see, it's in this season, as in every season, but now more than ever, let all that you do be done in love, 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Every thought, every word, every deed, every post, let it all be bathed in love. Now I realize I could just almost stop right there. That would be a perfect note to just end our time on. And I imagine there really isn't a better note that we could have ended this on. But I'm going to bring a couple of matters to application that's in-house. We've dealt with love of brethren and how to think through some of the nuances and complexities of loving our neighbor as ourself as we're out in the public sphere. But now we want to consider some of the ways that we can think through loving our brethren. And for initially, at the outset here, let's just address the gathering for a moment. Because I want you to see something here. If we choose to not meet in an effort to love our neighbor, who are we prioritizing? We're prioritizing those outside the church. We're prioritizing not the brethren but the unbelieving world around us. For what reason? For our witness to them. But who are we supposed to prioritize? The body of Christ. And Jesus says, our love for one another is that which testifies that we are his. And therefore, our love for one another, biblically speaking, is what is most paramount in testifying to the glory of Christ. We're actually at risk of compromising our witness to the watching world by not gathering. But what about masks? How are we to navigate the issue of masks in the body? And let me just reiterate that as elders, we are not planning and have no plans to mandate masks. So let's just take that off the table for a moment. And let's just deal with the matter of masks. As it relates to our body. And for those of you who question their efficacy, you need to know that some in the body believe they're beneficial. And it doesn't matter how many posts or or the number of posts or number of articles that you post on the issue, they believe they're beneficial. And the posts aren't gonna change their mind. And so for those who believe masks are beneficial. Each one of us should really consider wearing one when we speak with them. In fact, let me ask you this. If you knew the entire body would return, if you put a mask on, would you be willing? Pregnant pause? Challenge? I'd like to think you'd say yes. I mean, if Jesus laid down his life for you on the cross, I think we can probably put on a mask. You say, but what about all the information to the contrary? I say, well, okay, but couldn't you give a little bit of time for that information to trickle in while you wear one? Couldn't you let a little time go by and have a little bit of flexibility in the meantime? I mean, you're probably going to have to wear one at work. The dentist, the doctor... Certainly some stores are going to make it non-negotiable. You're going to have to put one on at some point. You say, but having you read all of the possible side effects? How unsanitary it is. To which I would say, how unsanitary was the cross? It's incredibly unsanitary. You see, I think in love, we can be flexible. And even if there's some grand agenda, it doesn't trump love for the brethren. I can give up my liberty for the sake of a brother or sister. But having said that, I think that as the church of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ here at Grace Life, I think we can do better than uniformity on this. I would love to see us as brothers and sisters in Christ dwelling together in love in spite of our differences. I would would prefer it. If each one of us could respect the decisions of the others and ultimately not take any offense and just know that God's taking care of them and he's taking care of us and we need to dwell harmoniously together as we navigate this season. Some will see masks as beneficial. Some won't. Each person in Romans 14, 5 must be fully convinced in his own mind. And so I'll just say this. If when we interact, and I'm speaking of myself here personally, you would like me to wear a mask, I am happy to do that. If when we're interacting one-on-one, you want me to have a mask on, I will do it. Absolutely. If that would convey to you that I love you and that I care for your well-being, regardless of whether or not I think they're efficacious, and regardless of some grand agenda that's rooted in Marxism, I don't care about any of that. I'm going to love you by putting a face cloth on. I actually ordered one, by the way. It's a antibacterial face mask. And I'm not going to plug any network marketing companies at this point in time. But anyway, I, I got one coming. Maybe it's even here today. I don't know. All that to say, this season provides for us a phenomenal opportunity to glorify God phenomenal. It's when things are difficult that love comes into action. It's when it's hard that it's time to love. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It's willing to bear up under the faults and offenses of the other. Love is kind. It it lavishes on those who don't deserve it. Graciousness and kindness, this is the time to love. And we can glorify God wonderfully together by demonstrating an unfailing commitment to one another. And it's amazing because moments to love each other are going to come quickly. There are going to be moments, you're going to have moments after this service where it's going to be time to love. We're going to be Faced with moments to love that are gonna come at us like gangbusters, and it's a time to love. So for us to be in that place, we're gonna have to preset the dial of our heart to love. The first impulse of every thought, word, and action needs to be love, shaped by love. up shortly, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to be together in fellowship, a wonderful day of fellowship. Let the first words, and even the second words, and the third words, let the words that, that proceed from your heart be words of love. And if your heart's not in that place right now, for whatever reason, just deal with that with the Lord now, so you can be in a, an effective vessel to, to display and radiate the love of God to his people. with salt all to the glory of Christ you say what's love got to do with it it's got everything to do with it in fact just let me read to you three verses in 1st Corinthians 13 if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love has everything. And discerning what love requires, as I've said, in a season like this, requires wisdom, humility, thoughtfulness, and discretion. A one-size-fits-all approach to love is not going to work. The matters are far too nuanced and complex, and may God give us great wisdom as we seek to navigate this season together. Now, maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord thing we've been discussing so far is brand new, things you've never considered before. And you're in this season when the world is in disarray and you are lacking in hope. You're fearful. You're concerned. I can make no promises to you about what the future holds. I can make no promises to you about what tomorrow will bring. I have no idea where we're headed as far as the world is concerned and the unrest in our our lives. But there is wonderful and glorious hope. And that hope is rooted in everything we've been discussing today concerning Christ and what he's done. Let me just tell you something. When we came into the world, we came in dead in our sin. We had no spiritual life within us. God created the world and Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. He gave them one prohibition. Not to eat. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they transgressed that prohibition plunged the entire human race into sin the sin of adam has been imputed to us and so we come into this world dead in our trespasses and sins we are dead spiritually and have nothing within us that that longs for god longs for his glory longs for his righteousness And so you can look at your own life, and you can see the way that you've been living. There is no love for God. You can look at the things that in your conscience you know are wrong, and you can see that you have done things that are evil and unrighteous. Well, let me tell you the good news. God's holy, and those who are going to dwell in his presence for all of eternity must have a perfect righteousness, and you have already failed on that. All of us have, but here's the good news. The father sent his son on a rescue mission. He sent his son to be born of a virgin, to become fully human, true human, true God, true man. God come down from heaven to earth and to live a life under the law. And under the law, he fulfilled every ounce of righteousness. He not only never sinned, though being though, though being tempted in all ways, He not only didn't sin, he fulfilled all positive righteousness. He walked in the ways of God. He loved the Father with all his mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he went to the cross. And on that cross, God the Father crushed his Son. He poured his righteous wrath and indignation upon his Son on that cross so that the Son, Jesus would become the atonement for sin. The scripture says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the father commissions his son, sends him into the world, he fulfills the law, goes to the cross, the father crushes his sin with the full weight of his wrath and indignation for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name, the son gives up his life on that cross, dies, goes into the grave, and rises on the third day, proving he had conquered both sin and death. And now the son extends his offer of salvation to you, the father extending that offer through the son to come unto him. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Son has accomplished everything necessary to dwell in the blessed presence of God for all of eternity. And what is required of you is to confess your sin, turn from that sin in repentant faith, to believe on Christ, to recognize that before God you have absolutely nothing, that you are a spirit you will beggar and have nothing to appeal to, no good that would ever warrant God's favor but instead look only to Christ as the one who has accomplished everything for salvation that is necessary in this on your behalf and by believing on him, the Father will credit you with the perfect righteousness of Christ So that even if tomorrow you die, you will immediately go into the presence of God, having the full righteousness necessary to dwell in his radiance and glory. And you have the certain guarantee of a future resurrection where you will be reunited with a glorified body fit for eternity, where you will dwell in a new heavens and a new earth and Christ reigning So if this is the first time you've ever heard this message today, I would just urge you to believe on Christ. He is wonderful. He is glorious. He is worthy of all praise. It will cost you your life. Because he says, if any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So you will have to give up your life. But he who gives it up, Jesus says, will find it. And so give up your life this day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved from the wrath to come, because the Son is going to return, and when he does, he is going to bring with him judgment. And all those who have rejected him will be left to face the full penalty for their unrighteousness. But salvation today is extended to you, and so believe on the Son. Father God, you know, not just my heart, but you know all of our hearts. And no doubt there are many hearts here today, if not all of us, that are burdened. Wanting to glorify you in this season, wanting to love the brethren, wanting to be wise and discerning. And so Father, we pray that you would help us to navigate this season. Let this moment that we've had today as the body of christ be an ointment for our body to be healthy and nourished full of the spirit bearing his fruit navigating the complexities of this season with grace with love and mercy we want to glorify you father and so we pray You would help us to that end. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.